Uh, some people are so heavenly minded they are no earthly good, wrote Oliver Wendell Holmes in the 19th century, and it became a standard proverb, at least amongst Christians. The claim was simple. You, you, you spend too much time thinking about God, you become useless in the so-called real world. And of course, it is absolute rubbish. I mean, of course, there, there, there are a few people who have a kind of heavenly-mindedness which makes them useless. I think of the early hermit Simon Stylites who took to the top of a pillar for I don't know how many years and never came down. I'm not sure he was much um, earthly use despite his claim to great uh, wisdom. But, but, but overwhelmingly, actually, that statement is false. And yet most of the world thinks it's, it's just a truism. You know, um, if Christians are talking about sexual ethics or poverty or finance or whatever, then, then naturally it's going to be helplessly, hopelessly out of date and out of touch. The impudence of a, of a church leader putting his head above the, the, the parapet on such issues uh, at least raises eyebrows and more often raises great uh, storms of hostility. Now, it is really important for us to acknowledge that Christians can be fools like the next person very easily. Christians can say silly things. But actually, the evidence is that Christians, at least the Christians who spend their time trying to understand the God of the Bible and the God of Jesus Christ, that, that, that Christians who take God seriously, actually have an awful lot more wisdom about how to live their lives than than the average person. Um, uh, For instance, charities, secular charities, universally acknowledge, mainly behind the scenes, that they too, even the secular ones, by and large, rely on the generosity of Christians. A friend of mine who's a fundraiser in a charity discovered that at a, at a fundraiser's meeting. Or the new faith-based schools that, that are increasingly springing up, up and up and down uh, the country are, are outperforming their more secular um, uh, neighbours, and not because they just uh, uh, cream off the best um, students from the area. The students from a similar background do better in these new faith-based schools than they do in others. Or uh, to give you another example, churches are increasingly recognized as being absolutely vital for for what's called the social capital of local communities. Now, the evidence is that the the heavenly-minded members of British society are actually much more earthly good, by and large, and when you read the Bible, that, comes, that, that, that should come as no surprise at all. Because the Bible tells us about God who made the world, the God who made human beings, and who made this world with wisdom, made human beings with a specific role in this world, called to live in a specific way. And though the Bible is... Uh, 
Uh, some parts of it, all parts of it, thousands of years old, some, some of it 3,000 years old and more, fundamentally that wisdom has not changed. The Bible's call centrally to put our trust in Jesus is still relevant. Millions of people around the world from every continent, from, 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 hundred, from, from almost every nation in the world are still doing that today and finding that it, it transforms their lives completely. And the Bible actually... Is, is, is uniquely helpful in helping us to live good lives. Nowhere is that more in focus than in this book of Proverbs, because Proverbs is part of that, that genre, that, that group of, of uh, books and piece, bits of literature in the Bible that are called wisdom. Wisdom is all about living a good life in the real world. It combines biblical wisdom, those two poles that we were thinking about at the beginning of the series, of, of, of a deep understanding of the practical realities of this world and a deep sense of the need for every human being to put their trust in God. That is how people live well, if they understand both this world and the God of the Bible who made this world. It is completely false to say that people who think about that God are no earthly use. They are massively of greater earthly use and they themselves find a life and a destiny which transcends this world. So it is, it is really important to study the whole Bible and to study this, this type of literature called wisdom. And today, Proverbs 6, after uh, last week we were looking at um, uh, sexual ethics, fundamentally, Proverbs 6 shows that actually wisdom has a lot to say about, it, about the world of finance. Wisdom has a lot to say about the world of work. Wisdom has a lot to say about the world of relationships, more broadly than just sexual relationships. It, 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 it covers the whole of human life. And this morning we could only dip into it very, very briefly. But let's, let's do that in these first 19 verses to try, and I want to try to persuade you, I've, I've tried to persuade you week on week, actually reflecting deeply on these things sets a person free. It is the good life. First of all, wisdom about finance. My son, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself, since you've fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest and allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. The specific situation he's referring to is the ancient practice of, of promising to underwrite another person's potential debt, basically their whole lifestyle. To say, I will bear any debts that that person um, 
uh, incurs. And on the surface of it, it looks like a loving and neighborly thing to do. After all, didn't Jesus say that we were to, to, to spend ourselves in caring for those less fortunate than, than themselves? Perhaps, it, perhaps uh, in a practical sense, it would enable a person of limited means to embark on a business of some, some, or other, some kind or other because they could engage in a partnership with someone who was confident enough to do that because the more wealthy neighbor next door had said, well, if it all goes wrong, I will pick up the pieces. You can see how it could be a really good thing for getting people, giving people a hand up. But it is unwise, says Proverbs. It binds us to our neighbour too firmly. We have, as he puts it, fallen into our neighbour's hands. We are snared. It's perfectly reasonable we have to live with the consequences of our own actions. But to sign a blank cheque for another, another person, well, that... That's a foolish commitment to make. Nobody can stand total surety for another person's decisions. It's just not a wise way to live. I remember, um, uh, you know, I trained as a vet, um, a wise old veterinary surgeon who used to lecture us in our clinical years. He had very little good worth listening to about veterinary medicine, but lots of wisdom in other areas. And he said, he said, be, <laughs> I'll tell you more if you like, um, uh, some other time. He said, be very careful who you go into partnership with. He said, um, marital disputes can be sorted out uh, more easily than business partner, partner disputes. Slightly more fruity, fruity in his language, and I can tell you that on another occasion. But uh, the, the truth is there and is very real that we need to take seriously. Business partnerships, in some ways, are more of a risk than marital partnerships, because at least as a married couple, you live together and start to jointly make decisions for your mutual interest. But in the world of business and finance... Sometimes uh, uh, the the risk is far um, greater. The great 16th century uh, reformer Martin Luther, in commenting on this, um, uh, suggested that there are actually only, only really four ways that a Christian ought to use their money. First of all, and most provocatively, he he notes that Jesus says Christians ought to allow, at times, their money to be stolen. Sermon on the Mount. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Justice is not the highest ideal for a Christian, um, said Luther. Uh, uh, Secondly, um, said Luther... um, Christians need to be prepared to give their money away. Chapter 5, verse 42 of Matthew's Gospel, for instance, Jesus says, give to the one who asks you. Thirdly, um, uh, Christians should be prepared to lend our money, not at interest. 
That was very, very important to the church in the first 1,500 years of its existence, that, that interest was fraught with problems because it was trying to, to uh, um, make money for nothing, effectively. Subsequently, the church started to interpret only excessive interest as usury. For the first um, 1,500 years of the church's life, it, ex- it interpreted all interest as usury. And there are some today who still think that actually it was a misstep in the 16th century when interest started to be uh, permitted. Profit sharing, you see, is no problem. It is a, it is a joint enterprise in a, uh, in a productive um, uh, uh, piece of work and both take the risk of profit or loss in that. But interest demands that, money, that more money comes back than went, no matter what the fate of the person who receives the loan. And that was considered unjust. You can ask about that more, if you like, or, or think about it some more. Third, third Luther's, Luther's third thing, lend, not at interest, and he said, be prepared to convert that loan into a gift. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them, but without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And then the fourth way that we can use our money is simply buying and selling, which, was, which is what money was invented for, as a unit of exchange so that we didn't have to go to market with a great big sheep under our arm to uh, buy some courgettes or whatever. We've got money to, uh, 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 to, to, to work with. That, that is the simple and straightforward picture that the Bible sets before us, frankly, of the purpose and right use of money. Now, those were simple days, even back in the 16th century. They were relatively simple days, and life has got much more complicated since then. But, but I want to suggest to you that the basic principles still pertain, and particularly this principle of being extremely cautious in how much you get involved in, in financial um, interactions that, could, that are far beyond your capacity to control. Now, the Bible, um, uh, in a number of areas, doesn't absolutely forbid things. It warns us about the consequences of things. So you will find, for instance, famously, the Bible tolerating slavery, whilst at the same time being very aware and pointing out to us the dangers of slavery. Similarly, in our complex modern financial world, We shouldn't read the Bible as giving an absolute prohibition on the kinds of modern financial relationships that we get into, but a warning stands. A warning, for instance, about how binding mortgages can be. Um, If we're going to buy a house, none of us can avoid... um, Uh, taking on a mortgage, but how easily, actually, that burden of debt becomes a millstone around our necks and stops us, actually, acting according to our best conscience about how we feel we should be living. 
a warning, uh, a warning to us about all the other debts that we amount, which then uh, inadvertently start to control us. Why, why should you take out a higher purchase on that brand new car when you can buy an old one for much less and you'll be fine? And you won't bound yourself to some long period of payments. Why bind yourself into a lifestyle which demands a certain income so that actually over time, when you, when, when you realize that the job is no longer really what you feel called to, you're stuck in it because, well, life has just become far from actually freedom. It has become a bondage to money. Here's the advice. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of the, uh, of the fowler. A simple lifestyle is wonderfully liberating. Now, now, you know, I, I know that house prices in Oxford mean that t- taking on a mortgage or, frankly, even renting it in Oxford binds us in certain respects. If your calling is to be in Oxford, as ours has been for the last uh, um, uh, decade and a half, then there is no way of avoiding that certain sort of limitation that those financial commitments have set upon you. But don't take on others gratuitously be free there is no greater freedom than sitting down and saying if at all possible I am going to choose the job that I do the place that I live according to my best sense of what God is calling me to do And I'm going to worry about finance as a secondary issue, not a primary one. There are plenty of situations where we, we simply don't have that much freedom. But where you can get it, take it. Free yourself from the snare, he says. Do not embark upon unreasonable, unnecessary financial burdens. That's what he says about finance. Um, Verses 6 to 11, here's what he says about work. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. The uh, advice seems to be very simple. Even insects know, as um, our Yorkshire friends like to say, you don't get out for now. Ants don't, I'm not very good at Yorkshire, am I? Ants don't work, he says, because there's a boss to enforce it. Verse 7, it has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Ants are wise about their savings, verse 8. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. And if even a small six-legged arthropod knows that, surely a human being ought to, he's saying. Yes, rest is a vital part of life. 
but an obsession with rest can creep up with terrible consequences. Verse 9, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little slum, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, scarcity like an armed man. Over the last hundred years or so, we have substantially actually reversed our attitudes to work in Britain. Not sure whether you're aware of that. In, in, in the past, our work has, was seen um, uh, as a vital part of our fulfillment as human beings. Pay was described as a reward or an honour or a fair share in the fruits of the, uh, the labour undertaken. But actually, over the last hundred years, um, the, th- uh, the whole theory of pay has, has, has it evolved so that um, now there is much more on a focus, a focus on a compensation. The word is often used these days. Compensation for the time that the person loses or gives to their employer. The underlying assumption being that they will not want to work to give that time, that work is a loss to the worker, and therefore the the employer has to compensate that worker to persuade the reluctant worker to work for them. Actually, increasingly, people who study the workplace find that 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 philosophy really doesn't work. If you go into the IT industry, you will find that that um, a simple strategy of paying more and more and more doesn't keep people. And there are other ways that they have to find to keep their best people, precisely uh, which feed into the, the biblical concept of the dignity of work, that it is a good thing. They need to feel that it is a good thing and a productive thing that they can do in their workplace. That satisfies people. That keeps people. But by and large, in our world, work, at least in the rhetoric of society, has lost its dignity. No wonder the majority of British workers today, if you ask them what they're working for, they say they're working either to pay for their lifestyle, or they're working for the weekend, or for their holidays. The whole rhetoric is about doing as little as possible to achieve the end result, which is rest. What a sterile, miserable view of the majority of our waking hours. Work certainly can be toil and drudgery at times because we live in a fallen world. But even ants know that an active working life is a healthy, positive life. Even sloths work nine hours a day, I found out. And it is that view of work, the more positive view of work, the biblical view of work, that occasionally uh, raises its head as um, politicians engage with the Christian concept. Ian Duncan Smith has been the latest one who has been influenced by uh, Christian teaching and is working hard to change uh, 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 welfare policy into something that enables people to get out of the poverty trap and into productive work. We could debate about how successful he has been, but the fundamental philosophy has to be something that Christians applaud because the Bible applauds it. 
Work is a good thing. Do not be a sluggard. A full employment policy is a good thing in a nation. As the Big Issue magazine says, a hand up, not a hand out, is a positive thing for the dignity of human beings. It must shape our view of our lives too. We've had a great holiday as, uh, as a family and I'm just at the end of a really uh, good sabbatical for which I thank you and the elders in particular for, for giving it to me. But that, it, th- that was not the, the main, the end point of, our li- of my life for this year. We step aside to rest and to reflect in order to be re-energized and refocused on the main thing of our life, which is doing productive work for the Lord. That doesn't just mean paid employment. It means being, being busy and vigorous in every aspect of life. Enjoying the dignity of being given arms and legs and eyes and ears and mouths and bodies that we can use for God's glory. One of, the, one of our greatest glories for most of us comes every morning, every Monday morning at 9am. We go to work. not an irritation. It's not a bad thing that we do while we wait to rest. It is central to our dignity. Slaves, obey your earthly masters, says the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, in everything. Do it not only with their eye, when their eyes on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. If ants don't need masters, then Christians don't in particular to make them work because they have the Lord to serve. Here's some wisdom then. Wisdom about money. Be prudent with money so that you can stay free and live a free life. Wisdom about work. Actually enjoy it as a central part of your dignity as a human being. Don't think your life is about aiming for rest. Your life is about productivity. And here's a third piece of wisdom, straightforward, about relationships. Verse 12. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eyes, signals with feet, motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he will always stir up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. The precise details of some of these uh, images are not quite clear. What is signaling with your feet? If anyone can tell me, I'd be interested. Winking, actually, in the Bible is not sort of a playful interaction with another person. It's the willful closing of our eyes to issues of justice. And uh, the, the overall picture, even if we don't know the details, is clear, though. Corrupt talk, a deceit in the heart, a habit of stirring up conflict. That is what be, is being described. 
and it is deeply, disastrously damaging. Troublemakers in churches are really damaging. Do you, uh, do you know that divisiveness in the church is one of the few sins which is specifically mentioned in the New Testament as meriting excommunication? It stands alongside blatant, open adultery as being a really serious issue. Troublemakers in families are deeply distressing. I have seen so many families torn apart because of the manipulative, malicious scheming, usually of just one person. There are always problems in families, but wise family members are, are good and kind and promote family, family, family unity and are honest and humble and gentle and do not bring up old hurts because families are delicate and precious things. And, 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 and one person or indeed one incident can damage a family for generations. Blessed are the peacemakers, said Jesus. They will be called sons of God. Troublemakers in the workplace as well. They are poison, aren't they? Plenty of us have experienced that. God hates such troublemaking more than almost anything else. Verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that uh, that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And the punchline is that one. The seventh one. The person who stirs up conflict in the community, probably actually because of their pride, haughty eyes, of their lying, their lying tongue, of their violence, hands that shed innocent blood, and their wicked schemes and so on. But the end result is what God really hates, really detests, is when people are alienated from one another. Do not get involved in that. Do not feed your desire to be justified in your own eyes or in the eyes of your friends. Your desire to, to, to be vindicated. Your desire to have someone's loyalty and therefore to exclude another person's loyalty. Don't feed those desires in your heart. Verse 15, Therefore disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. That is how the, the result of a life devoted to disharmony. Well, who said that reading the Bible makes you less earthly use, eh? Who said that if we're so heavenly minded we will be no earthly use? The Bible is deeply Practical. The Bible actually sets people free. But here's a question. Does following these things automatically make you happy? Well, I think the answer is, on balance, people are, and they will be. But the problems of this world are deeper than a few trite sayings. In the end, this world is a place actually in which, as I've said, we are bound to the fate of others 
irrevocably and we cannot be totally free. Labor is often toilsome and fruitless. Troublemakers do sometimes have their day. And all biblical wisdom is struggling with that reality too. And all biblical wisdom is ultimately longing for Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus is an interesting fulfillment of that call in verses 1 to 5 in particular. Because the problem for a human being putting up security for our neighbor is that we couldn't bear that security if they got into trouble. But down through the ages, Bible readers have noticed again and again and again that there is one person who could put up security for his neighbor and he has all the wealth of the universe at his command. He will not be overwhelmed by it. It's Jesus. Indeed, he died on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay our debt, as the Bible says, so that there is no debt left. And we are truly free from debts when we actually accept the security offered by Jesus alone. There is one person who worked like an ant and achieved perfect wealth. It was Jesus who paid for all of our sins on the cross and promised us the eternal blessing of the new heaven and the new earth where moth and rust does not destroy Stored up treasure now he has, not just for the winter, but for eternity. And there is one person who finally breaks down all discord. It was Jesus who died on the cross and therefore created one new humanity, now brought together in local churches like this, and one day finally brought together in his new creation, united in their worship of him because he paid for all of their debts. What Proverbs 6 says is that you will live a better life if you follow these, this advice about finance, about work, and about relationships. And, it's, and, it, and it guarantees that on balance, people will. But what the Bible says is that those things are only pale foreshadowings of the blessing that comes from Jesus who did put up security, made a pledge for his neighbor, for you. If we put our trust in Jesus, 
then we'll not only on balance have a better life now, we'll be great earthly good. We will have the eternal security of knowing the one who went ahead and lived perfectly for us. It is win-win. That's the wisdom of the Bible. You can be heavenly-minded and earthly good. They go together perfectly.